Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm J. Dylan Proctor, and today I'm joined by Amanda Sparrow and Anthony Alegria. In our conversations today, we'll start off by talking about the due process as a personal virtue. Oftentimes, we associate the due process with legal systems, but I want us to reimagine it as something relevant to our personal lives. Putting off of our conversation on the due process, we're going to move to the New Testament and talk about the character Nicodemus and how he is one very interested in finding truth and not just whatever the mobs want. Then we're going to wrap up our conversation today by discussing something which has happened recently in our culture where Katy Perry has been talking about her Jesus tattoo and the general moral confusion which comes around celebrities and faith. Well, I hope you enjoy our program today. Let's get right into it. What do you think of when you think of the due process? Do you associate it with certain amendments or part of a constitution or maybe even the court system? When you think of the due process, do you think of it as a personal virtue, something necessary in our our lives as we build moral architecture in our own life and we influence the lives of people around us? I really want us to think of the due process as something which is so important where we don't just rush to judgments about people and issue out verdicts of guilt or innocence based on what a mob or something around us may tell us, but we actually use critical thinking to examine the evidence in the world around us. Um, and I'm just going to open up this conversation with Amanda and Anthony and ask you all, what do you think of when you think of the due process? Well, I think initially, yeah, the, the kind of initial, I guess, shortcut in my brain is to some kind of court system, some kind of law and order, uh, CSI episode of finding evidence, presenting it before a body of judges and jurors, and then getting the result. I think also the reason why this language is so difficult for us to take personally is because often we have looked at the due process in our government systems and said that they have failed. And so because they have failed, um, whether they have made, uh, you know, given a guilty verdict to an innocent person or a guilty person has gone free or, or whatever the circumstances, we've kind of then said, okay, well, then due process has failed as a system. Therefore, I personally do not have to participate individually or collectively in that kind of process. And so, of course, we see the pathology of this, the, the great destruction that it brings when we either as an individual or as part of a community decide we don't have to evaluate something and we don't have to try to research and find the information in order to come to a conclusion. We kind of can just feel it out because maybe our feelings, our gut instinct might be more right than this corrupt system. Okay. Anthony, what do you think? Um, I will say that before I probably would have agreed that whenever I heard due process, I think of like, you know, legislature and um, a court system and things like that. But, you know, we've talked about this before in, about the due process in, I guess, social interactions, you know, whenever you receive information from someone else and most of the time about someone else. Um, and so, you know, now I really, really like it because a lot of people do understand that due process is something that we should hold as a common virtue between human beings, Yeah. you know? And I like it. I like the language a lot because... It can communicate the idea that, you know, we're not supposed to, we're not, we should be, we should judge sparingly, I guess, you know, and only whenever we know for sure that this is um, a correct judgment to make. And so, you know, I like, I like the language of it a lot because you can tell someone to, you know, maintain due process in this situation. And a lot of times it will kind of set them back and disarm them because they're not used to hearing it used that way. Yeah. And then, but they can see how it completely applies. Well, we see so that's why I like it. So many areas in our world, especially with the coming of social media, 
that people do not have the virtue of due process. Somebody posts something online, they immediately believe it's true. It's really infected a lot of our social levels, and especially for young people who are starting to mature, they're starting to come out of adolescence and become an adult. They don't really have this idea of waiting for evidence. Don't just believe everything your friends or people online post. Wait and withhold judgment till you know more about a situation. Again, I think it's so interesting. We've got Facebook and the other forms of social media, Twitter, whatever have you. And a lot of the people who were involved early in this, of course, there's the guy who is uh, big and important in Facebook. And he's come out and said, actually, the evidence is in Facebook is terrible for people. Um, it's tearing apart the fabric of, of society because we no longer really have the ability to, to have social interactions that are more of a negotiation and we hear different arguments. We basically find echo chambers to be in and we sort of stick there. And for young people, they're not taught as individuals to hear both sides of an argument to, and this is not even just with political or moral issues. This is just with even like high school things when people are dealing with bully situations. They, they don't hear multiple angles of things and they, they have all these rest to judgments, whether it be something bad or something good. And you get all these emotional highs and emotional lows and it just stratospheres across the emotional spectrum in a crazy way that is just absolutely absurd. We ask the church, we need to teach people the importance of the due process. And it's interesting, Jesus, when he goes to the cross, the mob that takes Jesus to the cross really wants to circumvent both the Jewish system's due process and the Roman system as well. There's a mob that says, we don't like that there's no evidence against Jesus, but we want him dead anyway. It's basically what happens. But this isn't the first time that happens in the Gospels. Actually, there's an interesting passage in John chapter 7 that I'd like for us to read. And um, Amanda, if I could ask you, could you read John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52? All right. So it says that when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was some division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest and to the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. All right, this is fantastic on so many levels. So many people in our modern day and age want to say, oh, a document written in the 18th century is irrelevant in our modern culture. They say, oh, the Bible, it's outdated. There's no value in it. It's a 2,000 plus year old document. It's completely worthless. That's a, a very lazy and foolish argument to make because a lot of these same things are recycled time and time again. Basically what happens in the midst of this is there is a group of religious leaders in the Jewish community who want to, to pass judgment on Jesus just because they do not like him. There's one among them, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. We just did a video talking about Nicodemus in Hot, Not, or Sanctified. Nicodemus comes to the situation and says, hey, hey, wait up. Before we just pass judgment, is it really right for us to pass judgment without even giving this man a hearing? Now, of course, Nicodemus is eventually understood to be a follower of Jesus. But even at this moment, we see him siding with Jesus and saying, look, legally, we should at least give the man a hearing. So many times in our culture, people say, this is what I want emotionally, and I don't care about the legality of it. 
Um, what do y'all think when y'all see Nicodemus here saying, we really need to have due process? What do y'all think about this? Well, I think he really does become kind of the lone voice amidst of the mob. He's the one that's trying to tether them back. And I love their response. Are you from Galilee too? Because isn't that just fantastic? Is is we hate this guy from Galilee. And so everyone that kind of gets in our way, we're just going to put you in that little box uh, that no one wants to be from this town. No one wants to fit this category. So we're going to put you there too, regardless if you are or not, um, just so we can discredit you. And it, it's it's fantastic. And, and still Nicodemus, again, he's the one that's searching out righteousness. He's trying to find, he wants to live up to what the law really means. Not just the emotional uh, knee-jerk reaction, not just the fear of losing power or authority because Jesus is, is proclaiming this fantastic message of this upside-down kingdom that regardless of all these circumstances happening, Nicodemus is the one that says, let's find out the truth. And really he is, he's the only voice, right? He's the only one that seems to be trying to do this because everyone else, whether it is the religious leaders or the crowd that later becomes the mob, um, or even Jesus's disciples don't really seem to quite understand what's going on to really investigate what's happening. Um, Nicodemus is still the one that says, wait a second, let's get all the facts together first. Um, and it's, he, I think he remains that lone voice even 2000 years later. Yeah. And you look at this very much true, Amanda. Anthony, what are your thoughts on this? I think, um, I think, well, we don't know for sure, I suppose, with absolute certainty, because, you know, the absence of proof isn't the proof of absence. But, you know, there's nothing to indicate that um, Nicodemus was given some sort of prophecy or any word of God or anything like that, telling him that this was going to be the Messiah who was coming and, you know, all this other. And I think, you know, it's so interesting to me that um, he really is kind of like walking in blind here. You know, he knows enough. To where he's like, I can't just throw judgment on this. But he doesn't know for sure that um, that Jesus is, in fact, who he, who people claim that he is and things like that. Yeah. But, you know, he's not allowing that to um, change his virtues, yeah. you know, and the things that he uh, believes in. And, you know, he, he, as well as the Pharisees say that they believe, um, the rest of the Pharisees, um, he believes that, you know, that they should indeed at least convict someone who's guilty. Yeah. They shouldn't con- be convicting people who aren't guilty. You know, he's sitting yeah. there like, you know, can could this could we at least prove this, please? You and know, he's, like, he is trying to tame the mob some too, saying at least the mob shouldn't be angry without at least hearing it hearing. Yeah. But there's a couple of things we see here. And of course Nicodemus does meet with Jesus in chapter three, so he's had at least one personal experience with Jesus. But Nicodemus comes into the situation and they use some arguments people use today. They say, Oh, well, from Galilee, you people are from Galilee, nothing good comes from Galilee. Well, that's not an argument. Then they have the other side of this. They say, search, go look for the, go look in the record, see if a prophet has ever come from Galilee. Again, that's not an argument that Jesus is not a prophet or a Messiah. Um, just because he, where he came from doesn't mean that. He's, they've already established that he's of the lineage of David. They've already seen the whole Bethlehem thing, even within this text. But they're just looking for a reason to discredit the man because they don't like him. And that's what you get when you get people who don't respect the very core virtue of the due process. Well, anyways, we're going to wrap up our conversation on this. Send us your comments, your questions. Tell us what you think about it. Thanks for watching. To further explore the concept of the due process, let's return to the New Testament to examine Nicodemus and see what role the due process plays in our faith. 
So without further ado, let's go ahead and learn a little bit about who exactly Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and follower of Jesus mentioned in the Gospel of John. He is mentioned in John chapters 3, 7, and 19. He is associated with being born again and takes Jesus' body from the cross to give him a funeral. So who was Nicodemus? Often we think of Pharisees as villains, but Nicodemus is clearly associated with something other than villainy throughout the Gospel. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and we should remember that the Pharisees were a sect of Jewish spiritual leaders who believed in a bodily resurrection, and they had some amount of popularity with the masses. Now, Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which were a group of rabbis serving in tribunals. One should think of the Sanhedrin in terms of a court system. Understanding that Nicodemus was not only a religious leader, but he was also part of the courts, is important to understanding his transformation into a follower of Christ. Knowing these details allows us to see the context in which Nicodemus is operating. When Nicodemus first appears in chapter 3, he seeks Jesus out in the night. And it is important to note that Jesus does not address Nicodemus by a group identity, but instead as an individual. Nicodemus appears again in chapter 7, where the Jewish leaders want to assign guilt to Jesus without a trial. And Nicodemus challenges them in saying that it is improper for them to judge Jesus without first giving him a hearing. In chapter 19, Nicodemus appears again along with Joseph of Arimathea, who come to collect Jesus' body after Christ has died on the cross. They do not realize at this point that Jesus is going to resurrect from the dead. None of the twelve are found here, but instead, the disciples who come to bury Jesus are Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and possibly some other female followers of Christ. Alright, now the question is hot, not or sanctified. What is Nicodemus in terms of theological inspiration? When we say hot, we mean that he is a positive theological inspiration or role model. If we say not, then he is not a good role model or theological inspiration. If we say sanctified, then we're saying only God's sanctified judgment can rule. All right, Amanda, what do you think on Nicodemus? Well, I think the short answer is definitely hot because Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, his pursuit is righteousness, right order. And he does all he can to investigate what is true righteousness. And he finds his answer in the life, the ministry, the death, and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. And he does so with such persistence and understanding and wisdom. And so I just think that definitely makes him a great, hot theological inspiration. Very good. Anthony, what do you think? Um, yeah, I would definitely say hot and follow Amanda's example. Um, his The way he investigates it is also, I find, to be really fascinating. It's completely awesome because, you know, if it's really easy for us to look at the Pharisee and be like, wow, those guys are, like, totally not cool. You know, <laughs> look at how they're treating Jesus. But um, whenever it comes to, like, you know, imagining that you're in the same position, you've studied the law your entire life, you've tried to make sure that the people are observant of it also, and then this guy comes on the scene and is, like, totally beating you at your own job, you know, and then um, he's also saying some things that are very radical. I, you know, it's not hard for me to, to imagine myself being at, in a little bit of uproar, too, being like, whoa, this, this guy needs to calm down, but, um, you know, uh, Nicodemus, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say this guy needs to calm down or anything like that. He's like, okay, let's go check this out then. He starts asking him questions about the kingdom. And even whenever he's faced with something that he doesn't understand, he still is like, okay, well, this isn't contradictory 
to anything I know yet. It's just new, and I haven't heard this before. So I'm going to hear this out and see if it aligns with everything else I know about the kingdom. And I think that that is seriously awesome for Nicodemus. Yeah, and I think those are, are very good analysis of who Nicodemus is. And I also would say hot on theological inspiration as Nicodemus goes. Though I want to give credit where credit is due. Last night we had in our study here at the church, we were looking at the character of Nicodemus. And there were a few people who were members of my congregation who had brought up a couple of aspects of Nicodemus. One is, when he first comes to Jesus in the night, is he coming as in somebody who's personally interested or is he coming as somebody in the official capacity of perhaps being a member of the Sanhedrin or even as a Pharisee wanting to know more about this Jesus so maybe they can better bring evidence against him or whatnot, but is actually coming in the official capacity, not actually having personal interest. Which either way, I think it's interesting that he is actually looking for evidence and looking for true justice. He's not making preconceived judgments. He's not going off what the mob or other people say. He's looking for personal evidence and, and something tangible evidence-wise to, to bring in a persuasive way, one way or another. And I think that's really cool. Another aspect of this is that Nicodemus is very much interested later. Again, we know that Nicodemus knows Jesus from pretty much the start of his ministry in the Gospel of John to the end. But there in the middle in chapter 7, where we find him, he's interested in the due process. He's upset with the others that are there when they have this council that comes together and they're wanting to arrest Jesus. They're wanting to, to prosecute him. They're wanting to have a guilty verdict pretty much without any evidence. And he says, hey, we're supposed to have some sort of process here where we actually let people have hearings before we just render them guilty. I think that's really cool. All right, welcome back to Tools for Liberty. Our section now is we're gonna talk about a topic in pop culture. We're going to be talking about Katy Perry, which are words I never thought I would say on this episode, but anyways, um, here we go with an article has come out recently that Katy Perry posted a picture um, of a tattoo that she has that says Jesus on, I think it's Instagram or Facebook or something like that. Anyways, the what she wrote about it was that her brokenness plus God's divinity equals my wholeness. And so we're going to just kind of be talking about our reaction to this and what it could mean uh, for her or also for uh, the people she influences. So uh, we'll just go around and start talking. All right. So we come to this table and when this this article first came to my attention, my reaction was sort of like the the emoji thing of like eyes rolling. Mm -hmm. And not I wasn't the only one that had this reaction, but then I kind of felt guilty about this because I do want people to be sincere in pursuing faith. Though I don't like the idea of this I, this cheap grace where we, we call upon the, the name of God and we involve ourselves in some sort of spirituality. And Amanda pointed out earlier that spirituality and faith are not always the same thing. They kind of do this circumstantially. Maybe they do it for publicity or whatnot. Either way, I really hope that Katy Perry is actually sincere in wanting personal transformation and, and finding wholeness in her life. As we've seen from a lot of the, the things she's said recently, she claims that she's actually looking at renewing herself, finding her identity. Even the comments she's made about cutting her hair off, she's had these these different struggles in life and she's actually looking for some sort of better understanding of who she is. And I really hope that that evolves into not just understanding our own identity, because a lot of times people in our modern world are so obsessed with their own identity. Hope that evolves into a place of figuring out where you can be as a transformed member of the body of Christ, who you can evolve into as a transformed individual that fits in the larger picture where everything's not just 
internal or egocentric, but it's something that says I want to fit into the world in a very healthy way and I want to be a transformed individual. So as we come to this situation, again, there's the initial reaction that kind of wants you to roll your eyes whenever celebrities say something like this. But I realized even as Christ comes to people, such as the, the woman who's about to be stoned, he asks, you know, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And a lot of times we want to say, well, nobody can be mad about this because everybody's a hypocrite. And as we look how D Jesus deals with people, he never really spends a lot of time saying, oh, you're a hypocrite. You thought you were righteous? Well, now I'm going to pass damnation on you. This isn't how Jesus works. Jesus always looks to something better. So when I see this situation, my, my thoughts are this. I'm not going to say that Katy Perry is the best role model. I'm not going to say other people are the best role model. But I hope that people can move in Christ-like transformation. And I hope that just as Jesus comes to that situation and says, okay, go and sin no more, that Katy Perry's desire for wholeness will actually move her in a direction of transformation and she'll actually grow spiritually and grow in, in terms of faith. All right. Anthony, what are your thoughts? Um, I will, Dylan spoke really well um, in regards to the possibilities of her person and stuff. So I'll take kind of like a different approach and think, you know, so what, what, what would this mean for like, the Christian community and things like that. So I would say that this is kind of a confusing situation in regards to judging whether or not this is good for the Christian community because, you know, on one side it's like, okay, this could go really well because this is a pop star perhaps, you know, starting to slide out of um, maybe past lifestyles, whatever, but, you know, could be a very, very good minister, you know, a very, all right, maybe um effective and outreaching minister you know what i mean she's got a really good platform mm -hmm. with um i mean who she is just her identity uh and her ability to socialize with that so i think that that is a good possibility of course well correct but, me if i'm wrong her parents were pentecostal preachers i think that's what the article says yeah okay um of course the church of the nazarene was originally the pentecostal church of the nazarene um, and I would like to formally say, Katy Perry, you are welcome at, at my church, Don't Church of the Nazarene. Amanda at Trinity Church of the Nazarene, I'm sure would welcome you as well. Yes, of course. My thing, and Amanda pointed this out earlier, that you hope people can have something more than just a superficial spirituality, but you can actually dive in deep. Mm -hmm. um, I know you were talking about that some, Amanda. Yes. Um, so not to interrupt Anthony's thought too much, and we'll get back to Anthony. I think you had a second point, but the idea that when we hear these things, especially celebrities, so an identity usually of a celebrity is so shallow. Even her name, Katy Perry, is not her real name. And if you read the um, article that we have here, it's that she, she has, in her own life, there's this division of trying to figure out who she is because there is this shallowness of this Katy Perry persona. And what does that really mean as a human being, who she is, and how does she deal with the trauma of her life? And she goes in talking about how she grew up and how Christianity was portrayed in her family and how that impacted her for the better, but also for the worse. And now she comes to this point in her life where she has experienced so much hurt and pain, and she doesn't want to be lost in this pain anymore. But here's then the problem. Is she treating God truly as somebody that's going to come in and transform her into a better person? Or is she just wanting like a, a divine painkiller that's going to eliminate the hurts and where she can just feel better for, for just a little bit longer so she can continue on living her life? And again, we are ministers of the gospel. We deeply and genuinely hope that she is in a place where she is finding healing and wholeness. But is it going to be genuine? Is it something 
that is going to transform her life for the better. Her her individually, as Anthony was saying, for her career, uh, for the, the people that she can influence and impact. Is this something that is true transformation? Is it going to be like Dylan talked about, the woman uh, who's, who was caught in adultery, the woman who's about to be stoned, and Jesus picks her up and says, go and sin more, no more. Basically, he's saying to her, you are transformed. You're no longer who you once were. You don't have to live that life anymore. You can be someone whole and, and healthy and great. Um, or is it going to be just, this is a publicity stunt, we've done it, we have kind of our Easter feel goodness, and then we can move on. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot going on in just this simple little story. Yeah, there is. And, again, I, I really hope that that there's true interest in transformation. And again, she's welcome at our congregation, and a lot of celebrities, particularly singers, live in the Nashville area. We're here in Nashville. But also, uh, moving beyond that, the church really could benefit from people of a public figure who have been of a certain state. I mean, people make celebrities out to be role models, but oftentimes, and more often than not, almost all the time, celebrities actually aren't good role models. It would be good to see somebody who is a celebrity have that transformation and become a really good role model. And also on top of that, the church could actually stand to have some music come into it that is of of taste. I actually, this is going to be embarrassing. I have no idea what Katy Perry's music sounds like. I know I'm I'm the outsider in terms of culture. I couldn't pick it out from a police lineup. But we look at modern church music, and when I say modern church, like the contemporary Christian worship music, like there's something superficial and missing in that. We really need a revolution in the music side of, of church and the worship side of church. Not only if you ask 10 worship pastors what does worship mean, you'll get a different answer, but also the, the proof and the hard evidence that is there that objectively a lot of our music is bad is the fact of how quick we are bored of it. Uh, even within one generation, I know when I was at Trevecca, uh, I had a lot of people I knew that were worship people in the worship arts program, and they would be like, oh, you're singing that song. That's from 2002. And they would be like, oh, we, we've got this new song that came out. And I know there were some several popular songs like Desert Song or whatever that came out. And then people would be like, oh, well, this is the new songs we're doing this year. And like the ones from just a year or two before, they were like, we don't need to do that. It's old. It's boring. People are bored with a lot of the Christian music material because it is so superficial. It's missing intellectually rigorous theology. Again, it's written by songwriters, not by theologians. And it's not the classics of music to be passed down for generations from time after time. Even things like Gregorian chants are still passed down. You get things like Be Thou My Vision, which have roots from the the 8th and 6th century that are ancient works of, of music that people are not bored with because they are objectively good. A lot of the pop music and things we have nowadays are objectively bad, and you see that in the fact that even worship pastors are like, well, we've got to churn out new music. We've got to have a new superficial and exciting program. We're going to get up and have all these emotions. People like it for about five, ten minutes. Two years from now, they're bored with those songs and don't want to hear them and are disgusted when they're used in church services. We as a whole, we have to pursue excellence. And somebody like Katy Perry, who is a celebrity and obviously has some amount of talent to have made it where she's at, having them be transformed, I would actually like them to see transformed to the point where we say we're going to make such excellent music that it's not just interesting to be on the top 20 charts for now, but we're going to produce something music-wise that is so good that people are going to care about it 2,000 years from now. That's sort of my final thoughts on it. And I'll let Amanda and Anthony... All right, those Anthony. are some those are some high aspirations though. <laughs> Two thousand years, that's a big one. Hey, we got to dream big. Yeah. We need to be encouraged. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, 
so anyways, back to what I was saying, like, you know, as far as the, the effects that this could have on the Christian community, you have the obvious, of course, if everything does go great in her um, personal life, I suppose, and she is seeking transformation, how awesome would that be? Yeah, I mean, that would be great for um, a ce- celebrity to be able to just take advantage of the platform they already have with them, you know, and uh, being able to use it to spread God's glory. That is awesome. But um, at the same time, there's also, like, the chance that that doesn't happen, which sad to say, I mean, like, you know, with anybody, I guess it could be likely mm-hmm. that, it, that it wouldn't happen, especially on social media. You know, if you're if you're basing on your chances on what they posted on social media, it's like, well, uh, people post a lot of things on social <laughs> media, so odds are it might not go too well. And um, so, you know, the kind of, like, the negative side to this is that, you know, yeah, it's great to have a... A celebrity saying something like this but then you know it provides people with such a i mean to say superficial again a superficial role model you yeah. know one that's like outwardly yeah christ is my savior all that good stuff you know um the bible's a good book and you know they say things along those lines and then they go out and they're not actually living christ-like you know what i'm saying and i'm not even meaning this in terms of like i suppose self-denial which self-denial is really is you know really important we're not to be gluttons and otherwise, but, you know, even in just, like, in terms of um, showing your ability to actually bring blessing to other people's lives, yeah. you know what I mean, and to actually um, provide some intellectual rigority, some some intellectual rigor to the table also, you know, to try to at least teach people or otherwise, and, um, you know, if people aren't provided with the full role model, we end up with the roaming virtues, yeah. which we've talked about roaming virtues before. But, you know, you only, if you only get a piece of the puzzle, you start to overemphasize that piece, you know. Yeah. So right. in any case, I'll turn that back over to you guys. <laughs> and I, I think then we can take this story as a great opportunity to look at ourselves. And as, you know, not probably, well, definitely none of us here um, in this room and probably most of us watching uh, do not have the platform that Katy Perry has. And yet we are reminded that she is a human being, that we all are human beings that are tasked with this great importance to live our lives in such a way that they are transformed by the grace of our God. And that whatever our interactions with the world are, whether they are face-to-face or through our social media, that we are called that those things are called to be under the realm of the kingdom of God. And so let's take this story and let's look at ourselves and see where we are in this. And is the transformation that we experience, uh, is the spirituality, the religiosity, the, the Christianity that we live out, is it mere for show? Is it just something because maybe it makes us feel good for a little while on Sunday mornings? Or is it true transformation that we have truly allowed God to come into our lives and to make and remake us into the image of a just and loving God. Um, So hopefully this conversation can be a good one for you to continue. Uh, Comment if you would like. Please keep them nice. Um, And share our content. Uh, We're on Facebook, YouTube, and other sources. So thank you for tuning in, and uh, God bless.